you're at a place you just discovered. And being an American Express Platinum card member with Global Dining Access by Resi helped you score tickets to quite the dining experience. Okay, chef. You're looking at something you've never seen before, much less tasted. After your first bite, you say nothing because you're speechless. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your dining experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. The mounting death toll from opioid addiction in our country suggests two big questions. What is to be done? And who is to blame? Though we're far from arriving at an answer to the first question, a growing movement believes there's a clear answer to the second, as Lee Cowan will report in our cover story. It's been two decades since Big Tobacco agreed to pay billions in compensation to help states pay for treating smoking-related illnesses. Now, opioid market was one of the lawyers who brought that case has a new corporate target, the makers of opioids. If they go to trial with these cases, they really are betting the company. I mean, if Ohio tries its case, that's not going to be pretty. Our Sunday morning cover story, litigation and the fight against addiction. One renowned restaurateur's recipe for success involves more than just changing the menu. With Mo Rocca, we'll get a first-hand look. Last spring, New York's 11 Madison Park restaurant was named the best in the world. What better time to shut the place down and redo it? Did that give you any pause when you thought, "Uh uh-oh, if it ain't broke, don't fix it? Maybe it's not the smartest thing from a business point of view, you know, but in a way it's kind of badass too. Ahead on Sunday morning, trying to improve on number one. Aaron Moriarty has proof that what's old is new. David Pogue talks shop with the head of Microsoft. Jim Gaffigan shares the pain of ski vacation sticker shock and more. All coming up when our Sunday morning podcast continues. Who's to blame for this nation's opioid crisis? If anyone is qualified to point an accusing finger, it may be the man who led the fight against another scourge years ago. Our cover story is reported by Lee Cowan. We will bring this industry to their knees right here in Mississippi, and I'm proud of it. When Mike Moore, a self-described country lawyer, first stood up against big tobacco, everyone thought he was crazy. Everyone. Let me tell you something. When I filed the case in, in 1994, my mom thought I was crazy. She, she called me and said, it might be time for you to come home now. They weren't laughing for long, though. We have reached agreement with the tobacco industry. Just four years later, as Mississippi's Attorney General, Moore negotiated the largest civil litigation settlement in U.S. history, forcing Big Tobacco to shell out 
more than $200 billion to help states recoup the costs of treating smoking-related illnesses. A staggering 72% of remaining smokers come from lower-income communities. But Moore also wanted something else, to make the tobacco companies pay to educate consumers about the dangers of cigarettes. The seed money for all of this was from the tobacco, tobacco settlement. Yep. He made sure that nearly $2 billion of that tobacco settlement was set aside to fund this. The Truth Initiative, a public health campaign widely credited with reducing the teen smoking rate, with sometimes shocking ad campaigns like these. Now, some 20 years later, Moore has another health crisis on his mind and another corporate target, the makers of opioids. In tobacco, somebody smokes a cigarette, it might be 30 years, 40 years before the disease process works and kills them. You take too many opioids, they'll kill you today. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, opioids killed more than 42,000 people in 2016. The White House Council of Economic Advisors estimates just in 2015, the cost associated with the opioid crisis topped $500 billion. Opioid market so Moore, now in private practice, is taking his skills on the road again, encouraging cities, counties, even entire states to come together and sue the drug makers, the same way states coalesced to sue Big Tobacco. Tobacco told us that nicotine was not an addictive drug. They told us that smoking did not cause cancer. These companies told us that there was less than 1% chance of getting addicted to these opioids and that they're absolutely proven to be effective for chronic pain. Both of those turn out to be really big lies. The nation's drug makers vigorously deny these allegations but agree there is an opiate addiction problem. However, they suggest blaming them for the entire crisis is, in the words of one drug maker, a stunning oversimplification. They dismiss any comparison to tobacco, pointing out that their opioid products are approved by the FDA, and say many of those who are dying of overdoses are abusing street opioids, not legal prescriptions. There's plenty of fault. The federal government's at fault. For God's sake, the FDA should have never approved some of these drugs. The states are at fault. The companies are at fault. Individuals are at fault. Doctors are at fault. There's plenty of fault. We can point our fingers all day long. But with all those places to point the finger, why just go after the drug companies? Well, you can't sue the federal government. You know, you can't sue all the individuals for taking the drugs. Trying to sue all the doctors in the country wouldn't work very well. So what I say is if there's 100% fault out there amongst many, many players, at least go to the people who made the billions of dollars on this. What we seek by filing these suits is accountability and restitution. So what started as a trickle has turned into a flood of litigation. And significantly harmed South Carolina and its citizens. There are now hundreds of city and county lawsuits being filed, as well as cases brought by at least 15 states so far. Our lawsuit? Including one of the biggest, Ohio, one of Moore's clients. We knew when we filed the lawsuit we weren't going to get them to the table to negotiate until we had some sort of critical mass with other states filing lawsuits. We think if we get enough states in there, the drug companies will have no choice but to come to the table and start talking with us. Because That's Mike DeWine, Ohio's attorney general, who's also running for governor. So you're not looking at this as much as punishing the drug companies as you are holding them accountable. Uh, we believe that 80% of the people who are addicts today, 80% of the people we've lost in Ohio, 
uh, started with pain meds. You think it's their fault, I, I no think, one else's? Look, I, I think a great deal of the fault lies at the feet of the drug companies, and you have to go back to these drug companies because they're the ones who misled the physicians. We firmly believe that we're going to win, and we believe that the amount of money that this jury will come back is going to be very, very high. Will it do anything to help the problem? Probably not. University of Kentucky law professor Richard Ausnes is concerned that money may be the driving motive behind all this litigation. Trial attorneys, he says, tend to make millions off pooling their resources and forcing the drug companies to settle, which also makes him wary of the precedent that these kinds of cases may set. Other lawsuits of this nature might be brought against other manufacturers. I saw something recently about we ought to sue Big Sugar. You know, sugar does all sorts of bad things for people. So I don't see any end in sight. I mean, if it works for the plaintiffs, uh, if they get something out of it, and of course the trial lawyers are doing pretty well too, why stop? It may come down to a public relations battle. Drug makers don't want to be tied to images of overflowing morgues. But that's just what's been happening in places like Dayton, Ohio where the county coroner, Kent Harshbarger, had to build another freezer just to accommodate all the bodies of opiate overdose victims being sent his way. Have you ever seen anything like this? Nobody's seen anything like this. The opioid crisis is a whole new death investigation problem. What's different, he says, beyond the size of the epidemic, is its victims. Many are from upper-middle-class families with no history of drug abuse. People like 27-year-old Sean Herman, who got hooked on OxyContin in college. But I don't think the majority of people who become addicted, say, to heroin, go out and say, you know what, today I'm going to try heroin. Let's see what that's like. The majority start with pills. His mom, Sharon Parsons, didn't know it at the time, but as the pills became harder and harder to get, Sean turned to street opioids, like heroin. He ended up overdosing on fentanyl the same drug that killed Prince and Tom Petty. I would say from the time he first became addicted until the time he died was about five years. Street fentanyl is up to 100 times more potent than morphine, an illicit opiate that law enforcement can't get off the streets fast enough, says Montgomery County Sheriff Phil Plummer. So how many overdoses were there last year in this county? Last year in this county, we had 3,637 overdoses in Montgomery County. And how did that compare to the year before? It almost doubled from the year before. One of his deputies, Walter Bender, has seen all manner of addicts on patrol, but he's never seen an epidemic on this scale. When was the last time you used? Seriously? Honestly? Yeah, honestly. Did you really? He knows many of the addicts, and he tries when he can to get them into treatment, but he can't keep them there. We took one guy uh, three different times in treatment, and each time he walked out, and we and we told him, we don't want to find you out here dead. And the next time we had contact with him, he was found dead in the woods. Never forget, it could be your child. Don't, and don't think that it's not going to happen to you because three of us sitting here never expected it to happen to us. Right. And it did, and the consequences were deadly. Like Sharon Parsons, Paul and Ellen Schoonover lost their 21-year-old son, Matt, to an opioid overdose six years ago. He was a big person in life but maybe even bigger, after he, after he lost his life, he may 
he may have greater influence on those who need his help than he could have ever had. They've since established the Matthew B. Schoonover Educational Center, where the message is clear. Even if all the opioid pills disappeared, the millions who are addicted today will still need help for decades. Mike Moore believes the lawsuits against Big Tobacco all those years ago... Know the truth, spread the truth. ...led to fewer people dying of smoking-related diseases. If he can have the same effect with opioids, he says he'll be satisfied. Does it feel a little bit like deja vu for you? It does. You can't stop. I mean, you have to do something about the problem, especially if you have the talent and you have the connections and you're involved in, in this process. Why, why would you stop? from our Sunday morning almanac, February 25th, 1950, 68 years ago today. TV comedies, Day of Days. Your show of shows, an hour and a half of top-notch entertainment. For that was the Saturday night, your show of shows premiered on NBC. A pioneering all-live comedy extravaganza your show of shows starred 27-year-old Sid Caesar, aided and abetted by Imogene Coca, Carl Reiner, and Howard Morris. <laughs> For 90 minutes a week, 39 weeks a year, Caesar churned out his uniquely wacky brand of comedy. A grueling pace, as he told Sunday Morning years later. It was such a mixture of laughter and terror because you knew that 9 o'clock Saturday night, you had to be there. Rain or shine, that's it. And was he ever there? <laughs> Flaunting his command of spontaneous gibberish. remember me. Uncle Parodying the popular show, This Is Your Life. and memorably creating his own version of the passionate beach scene in the film From Here to Eternity. <laughs> Not that he did it all on his own. His writer's room included the likes of Mel Brooks and Neil Simon. For seven years, your show of shows and its successor, Caesar's Hour, ruled Saturday nights only to be done in by the broader-based appeal of The Lawrence Welk Show on ABC. Sid Caesar died in 2014 at the age of 91, but in the memory of his fans, his show of shows lives on. Sid Caesar wasn't the only one of his comic troupe to make it past age 90. Just this past Friday, we learned of the death of Nanette Fabre, who succeeded Imogene Coca as Caesar's co-star on Caesar's Hour. Fabre was 97. As for Imogene Coca, she died in 2001 at age 92.
What's old is new is the principle that guides the craftsman Aaron Moriarty of 48 Hours now tells us about. John Darian is on a treasure hunt in New York City. Hello. You never know. It's like making a new discovery. First stop, a century-old establishment on the Lower East Side named, aptly enough, the Old Print Shop. These are our small horses. We have Americana. We have some... He'll spend hours digging through piles of 18th and 19th century etchings and lithographs. Just something about the charm, the way things are rendered. And what does Darian do with these expensive images? He cuts them up, turning these long-forgotten pictures into 21st century collectibles. Are you a collagist? Are you an artist? Are you an artisan? It's so weird. Sometimes I don't really know how to, uh, what, what to call myself. I just love sharing all this stuff. Bowls, plates, paperweights, sold in his own shops and at more than 600 stores around the world. Here's the display at New York's Bergdorf Goodman. It's sort of like reverse painting. You'll have one image that goes on first, and then behind it is another image. With the same precision that Darian selects his patterns, his hand-picked staff of artisans follows his vision. We have to draw a little diagram of where it goes on and what piece goes on first. Gluing high-quality prints of the original images to various pieces of glassware. The whole piece, I guess, takes probably about an hour with drying time. Every piece reflects Darian's unique sense of whimsy. I think it's super funny that it's like a bat that has a human face. And there's the couple clothed in pea pods, along with the more traditional images. Horses popular? Horses are popular, yes. So what doesn't do as well? People. John Darian, now 55, grew up in Watertown, Massachusetts, getting lost in old books and movies. Did you ever think when you were growing up that this is what you'd be doing? No, I'm the youngest of six and I was sort of a freak because I was the quiet one that made things and my dad was like, well, how do we do with him? I get the impression they didn't really understand what you were doing. Yeah, when in my mid-20s, my dad had this idea that I could lease a milk truck and deliver milk somehow. Like he was kind of very close to what I did or who I was. As a young man, he did study art for a bit painted and collected buttons, lots of buttons. This is one of like five suitcases. Oh my gosh, and these are buttons? They look like gems. So you're still thinking about doing something with all these buttons. They're in the back of my brain, yeah. And what flickers in Darian's brain could fill rooms, and in fact does, rooms inside three side-by-side -side Manhattan stores, the first one opened in 1995. This is not what I expected. There's a lot to look at. I know. This is not what I expected. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So where should I look first? Everything here is handmade. Do some people just come in here and just look? It's, I mean... It's fine with me. I think, I think just looking is great. I really do. That's a $60 paperweight. And every object is placed just so. I will go in there and move something an inch. 
it is part of my life. I'm, I live sort of in those stores in a way, like my home. He's not kidding. He lives right above one of his shops. My dream is that people would not know how to get out, <laughs> like, and just think it's a cabinet. Where he turned an old cabinet into the entrance doorway and replaced a wall with a wooden structure that is 250 years old. I had this wall in storage for like 16 years, and when we, I got the space, it fit it perfectly. This is a found piece from the 30s. In 2016, Darian collected the images he loves most and put them in a book. These things, they really crack me up. I love those. And he says, it's just fine if you want to cut it up. Yes, please go right ahead and do it. I, I, I hope that people will keep one book for themselves and maybe get another one to cut up. When you're suggesting that people actually cut out some of these images, what do you do with them? I like the idea of framing them, framing them and hanging them in a group, and it looks great. John Darian has discovered the beauty of living in the past. It's as if someone else planned my life, and I just woke up and I was like, oh, this is my life. I definitely feel lucky. I don't really know how all of this happened. The recipe for success at one top restaurant called for throwing out everything, including the kitchen sink. Moraka has the before and after. If you're skeptical that fine dining is an art, let us take you inside Manhattan's 11 Madison Park. You're in four top. From the preparation of the food, to its plating, to the restaurant's decor, no detail is too fine. Everything that we do, we try to do on a high level. So if we serve you coffee, we want to make sure it's a really good coffee, the best it can be. The restaurant was a bustling brasserie when chef Daniel Hume and business partner Will Guadara took charge in 2006. Under their stewardship, it became more and more refined and celebrated until last spring it was named the number one restaurant in the world. What better time to shut the place down and start all over again? In a way, it was kind of a beautiful thing. You know, it's kind of like the unexpected. Maybe it's not the smartest thing from a business point of view, you know, closing when you have the most demand. But in a way, it's kind of badass, too. It is. <laughs> Over four months last summer, the dining room was stripped bare and the kitchen gutted. How many people will eventually be working in this space? Well, we have 70 chefs. So it's kind of like a ballet when everything is in motion. And much of the metal, pots and pans, cabinets and countertops, repurposed by artist Daniel Turner. So you melted all we the kitchen appliances, it, yeah, basically. Into this solid block that now will be the step into the new restaurant. Sort of the idea you have to go through the past to, to be in the present. It may be new, but this 11 Madison Park is even more in harmony with the historic Metropolitan Life building that towers over it. Well, I love what you've done with the place. Thank you. 
It's even more grand than the old restaurant, memorialized in that step by the entrance. I have to say, as soon as you come in, it's sort of like Gotham. <laughs> it has a really classic. No, you know th look. this is such a historic building because the room is the greatest asset, right. and the architecture that we add in the interior should just highlight that architecture. Artist Olympia Scary's new windows are bringing new light to the space. She's worked with this amazing glassmaker in Zurich, and she's made these painted glasses that are now uh, going to be above the entrance. Let's pull out your favorite. And painter Rita Ackerman created what looks like a, well, smudged chalkboard. So this painting, she actually redrew the painting that was there before and sort of erased it. Sort of with the theme, we're at the new beginning. But of course, things actually begin back here. In Chef Daniel Hume's new kitchen, things hum along with precision. This is really kind of a dream come true because, you know, I've been here in this kitchen for 11 years and I kind of in the 11 years learned what I want this kitchen to be, where I want my pots to be, where I want the stove to be, what we need. In this kitchen, Hume is at the top um, of his so game. We were able to build a refrigerator just made for the drying of the ducks. One thing that hasn't changed at 11 Madison Park. Too tough. It's still a very expensive night out at around $300 a person, about the price of a ticket to a hot Broadway show, and a responsibility that Hume says he doesn't take lightly. Anyone who walks through these doors, they maybe waited a long time to come here. Maybe they saved up for it to come here. And they want to have a great experience. And, and we have the responsibility to hopefully deliver. Of course, you can't improve on number one restaurant in the world. So if it ain't broke, why fix it? There's actually a favorite saying by an artist I like very much. His name is William de Kooning. And one of his quotes is, I have to change to stay the same. And I feel very much that is so true for this restaurant. If we would stop changing, we would lose who we are. Steve Hartman has just paid a return visit to a young man who goes all out to honor our veterans of World War II. 20-year-old Rishi Sharma has always been into superheroes, the real kind. That's why, as a junior in high school, he made it his mission to meet as many World War II combat veterans as possible. I ditched so many days of high school to go do an interview. You were skipping school to go interview vets? Yeah. I started riding my bike to the local senior home. I interviewed those guys, then I started driving. It became a daily undertaking. Every single day. When we first met Rishi in 2016, he was driving all over Southern California. I had a lot of missions. Interviewing guys like Marine we Tank Commander Ernie Isley. They were going to make a big camp there and attack us at night. <laughs> Rishi talks to the men for hours. Wow. Then gives the recordings to their families. He says he does it because time is short. We're losing about 400 World War II vets every day. It's amazing how much history and knowledge is encased in each one of these individuals and how much is lost when one of them dies without sharing their story. The fact is I wake up every day to obituaries, guys who I wanted to interview, 
and I have to find out that, you know, they died. At this point, I should tell you, Rishi doesn't come from a military family. His parents immigrated here from India. And yet, he cares as much about our greatest generation as any young man I've ever met. My name is Rishi Sharma. In addition to his in-person interviews, he was telephoning at least five World War II vets a day just to thank them for their service and sacrifice. It means a great deal to me that you were willing to endure all of that so that I could be here today. Well, thank you very much. After this story first aired, Rishi raised enough money on GoFundMe to expand his mission across the country. He travels by car, often sleeps in it. So far, he has interviewed over 850 vets in 40 states, learning about their stories and their scars. Those that have healed and those that will never. Who is that? This is my brother Jack, and he died in my arms on, on the battlefield. Nice to know. As long as there are World War II veterans willing to talk, there will be at least one young man oh, shucks. willing to listen. You mean a lot to me. <laughs> There's still time to get in some winter sports. Just ask our Jim Gaffigan. Because I'm a great father, I took my family skiing last weekend. Yes, it was expensive. No, I don't own an oil company. I'd rather not think about how much it costs me. I just hope some of my children don't want to go to college. This time I took my five-year-old skiing for the first time because, well, I guess I didn't want to like him anymore. And Michael is tripping over me. No, I'm not. Five-year-olds on dry land are not that pleasant to be around. Maybe I wanted to see how he behaves on snow and ice wearing boots roughly the size of milk crates. Patrick, stand up. Let's just say the magic carpet lost some of its magic. Who knew standing was going to be that hard for him? In my five-year-old's defense, skiing is insane. Prior to even awkwardly waddling to the chairlift, a complete and total wardrobe makeover must occur. Of course, you'll need skis, but you also need special boots for those skis, and for no apparent reason, poles that you just hold on to. You'll need different pants, can't wear any of the pants you own. If you are getting pants, you might as well get a new ski coat. You don't want to be seen skiing in a non-skiing coat. How embarrassing. You will also need a helmet and goggles, because, you know, you are skiing, but you might as well look like you're auditioning for the remake of Top Gun. <laughs> skiing was obviously a rich person's idea. Somebody probably looked at a mountain and thought, oh, that mountain's beautiful. I'd love to ski down it. But can someone build a contraption that could carry me up to the top? I don't want to hike right now. I'd like to ski. I want to be one with nature, but I don't want to feel nature. I want every inch of my body protected from nature. I want to be out there with nature. But halfway up the mountain, I'd love if there was a coffee shop. Skiing is really the only time you will see rich people wait in line. And believe me, they're not happy about it. Ski resorts actually have to hire someone to encourage people to take their turn. Skiing is kind of a metaphor for being wealthy in America. By some twist of fate, you get transported to the top, and then you comfortably glide down, 
surrounded by luxury, avoiding small problems along the way. <laughs> oh, someone fell. Well, that's not my problem. <laughs> la 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 la. <laughs> From time to time, we like to catch up with the leaders of some of America's biggest companies. This morning, David Pogue talks shop with the head of a high-tech giant. Welcome to the launch of Windows 95. Microsoft has never been what you'd call a subtle company. Windows 95 is so easy, even a talk show host can figure it out. <laughs> Almost 23 years ago, to promote its new Windows 95 operating system. The company hired Jay Leno as host. And uh, sir, your name is? Pete. Pete, how are you, Pete? Lovely outfit. Uh, are you single? <laughs> and made an ad starring Jennifer Aniston. Well, what happens when you like had the old Windows and then installed Windows 95? Under CEO Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer, his successor, Microsoft dominated the PC market and became one of the most valuable companies on earth. It's nice to have a business that's growing at 20%. The question is, what happens after? Mm. But by 2014, when Satya Nadella became the third CEO in Microsoft's history, things had changed. And we are calling it iPhone. Smartphones had taken over the world, running software from Apple and Google people wondered if Microsoft's best days were behind it. In his recent book, Hit Refresh, Nadella writes about his effort to change the company's culture. My primary instinct was to be able to tell the story of change and transformation while going through it. Mm. When one thing you talk a lot about in the book is empathy and compassion. Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer, during their tenures here, had terrific strengths as leaders, but I'm not sure you know, compassion would be the word that jumped out about a young Bill Gates or Steve. Am I mistaken about that? I mean, I, I think, um, you know, in, in their own way, I feel that they have a lot of that, you know, very deep in what they did and what they're doing today. Um, but when I think about uh, empathy or compassion, I think it's a business essential. We are in the business of m basically meeting unmet unarticulated needs of customers. And there's no way you're going to be able to get that consistently right if you don't have that deep sense of empathy or being able to see what others are seeing. Satya Nadella grew up in India. He moved to the U.S. in 1988 to study computer science at college. And then in 1992, during a visit back home, he ran into Anu Venugopal, an old family friend he'd known since elementary school. And he realized she was the one. I've known Satya all my life. So when I married, when he asked me to marry him, it felt like I was marrying my best friend. <laughs> Anu and Satya Nadella are both American citizens now. But immigration laws at the time forced them to spend the first year and a half of their marriage apart. Yes, we wrote letters and long phone calls. I think most of Satya's uh, paycheck went towards phone calls. <laughs> and yes. they were expensive. They were very expensive then. The couple knows all too well the value of empathy. Their son Zane, who's 21 now, suffers from cerebral palsy. 
to be able to see the world through his eyes and then recognize my responsibility towards him, that, I think, has shaped a lot of who I am today. The new, more inclusive Microsoft has been opening up its technology to disabled people. Read me the headings. I see appetizers, salads, paninis. Product manager Angela Mills, who's legally blind, showed me Microsoft's new Seeing AI app. So if I now hold it up. It helps her read text. Carrot malted. Oh. Balls. Recognize objects. Banana. Here go three feet to your left. Orange. Orange. That is oranges. Yeah. Orange. Take picture. And even identify people. 49-year-old man with brown hair looking happy. Wow, he left out tall and handsome, but that's pretty close. That's, that's that Microsoft app is running on an Apple iPhone. That sentence would have been unthinkable before Nadella came along. A bunch of passionate people came together in a hackathon and said, How, what, would we, can, what can we do with this amazing breakthroughs we are having in computer vision? What's the app we should build as Microsoft that can uniquely help empower people? Kinder and gentler seems to be working. Since Nadella became CEO, the company's stock has more than doubled. And for the first time in a long time, people are calling Microsoft innovative. All right, so go ahead and put this on. The Microsoft HoloLens is a prime example. It's an augmented reality headset. It superimposes graphics on the world around you. Go ahead and just look at the browser, select it, and drag up and down. Ah. You're an expert. <laughs> Recently, Microsoft has been in the news for more than its new technology. I'm here today to announce that the program known as DACA that was effectuated under the Obama administration is being rescinded. Nadella says he's had good conversations with President Trump. We'll start with our wonderful, great genius from Microsoft who has done one hell of a job. But he has forcefully denounced the administration's immigration policies. He's even promised to provide lawyers for any of the so-called dreamers at Microsoft who are now threatened with deportation. For this immigrant, an unlikely CEO, that's more than just a business decision. It's personal. I always say that I'm a product of two amazingly unique American things. Uh, one is American technology reaching me where I was growing up and making it possible for me to dream. Uh, and the enlightened American immigration policy mm. allowing me to come and live that dream. And so that's what I think uh, makes America and American companies uh, unique. I'm Jane Pauley. Thank you for listening. And please join us again next Sunday morning. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.